When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Adjust Your Tracking and all the Playlist Podcasts are sponsored by Mubi, a curated online cinema streaming a selection of exceptional independent, classic, and award-winning films from around the globe. Mubi's film experts handpick every single film they show. Each day they present a new gem, and you have one month to watch it. Visit mubi.com slash the playlist to start a special 30-day free trial. Currently streaming on Mubi, uh, you know, films from, uh, from Alan Clark, Mike Nichols, and even uh, AYT favorite Gaspar Noé, his one of his most notorious films, maybe his most notorious film, Irreversible, also streaming on Mubi. And that's, you know, the more mainstream known stuff. Uh, Mubi has a great selection of uh, just undiscovered films that are worth checking out. So we thank them for their support of this podcast. Now on with the show. Welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Joe, we've been away for like a month, maybe the longest time since we got back on mic here a few months ago. Jesus, has it been that long? Yeah, I was looking. Uh, I, I put an older episode out, the the Donnie Darko episode, in the sort of interim. But uh, okay. yeah, it was about mid-April when we talked, uh, actually yeah, talked about, true. yeah, we talked about David Lynch documentary, which will, uh, you know, will we'll be bringing him up again, uh, not too long in this episode. Uh, so yeah, you know, it's, it's weird how easily sometimes a month can, can, uh, go by without recording, but, uh, good to be back on mic. And I just wanted to start things off by saying how much I enjoyed while we weren't recording. I certainly was watching a good amount of stuff and, um, you know, master of none season two drops on Netflix a few weeks back. And I like a zombie just like barreled through it in a weekend. Yeah. I did, I did the binge thing and, um, I don't, I'm usually able to control that <laughs> impulse mm-hmm. and like sort of spread things out for a while. But, um, I adore that show so much. And I just, uh, just had to say at the top how much I'm still loving the second season and, I love the way Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang, the creators of the show, have essentially made a TV show with there's always an overarching like arc going on through a season, but essentially you're watching a bunch of various like short films. Yeah. And yeah, some of my favorite just straight up like short films, half an hour short films have come from this series and uh season 2 certainly has uh, a number of them that I've that I've just been loving. So uh you've been watching it yourself, right? Yeah, it's got that great kind of like uh, New York um, short story quality that Louis captures, but with like a, a sort of like emotional core that like, you know, in the sort of lesser seasons of Louis, it wasn't able to access. And I think, you know, Aziz Ansari really sort of demonstrates his, his chops, like not only as an actor, but as a director this season for sure. And like, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, there's, 
we're we're never not talking about the sort of abundance of content. So it's just like when you have those shows that you have that sort of narcotic urge to get through and you're just like, I have to I have to watch more, I have to watch more. Like that doesn't happen with everything. You know what I mean? And so like sometimes it's a chore to get through stuff and that feels like a really ridiculous problem to be confronting where you're just like uh, I don't know. It seems like work to get through Fargo season one. So I don't, it just doesn't see, you know what I mean? And like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so with a show like that's so compulsively watchable, like master of none, it's just like, it's a, it's a real like gift, you know? And there was a, there was a moment. I'm going to, I'm going to admit something here. There was Ooh. a moment in one of the sort of like mid season episodes uh, where I'm at home, I'm surrounded by all my distractions, and uh, I glance at one of my distractions during this sort of what feels like the conclusion of an episode. And normally I, I know like what's going on because I'm being cued by dialogue. I can still follow what's happening even if I glance at my email or something like that. And, and then there's no dialogue, it's just music. And I look up and I'm like, oh, I'm fucking missing something because I'm being a, a careless, irresponsible viewer because it's like this it's the scene where Aziz Ansari's character is like taking in what has just happened to him in terms of this unrequited love he's experiencing and he's sitting in the back of his Uber on his way home and it's a like a 5 minute shot where you're watching an entire silent performance from him where something's setting in and it's just like uh no like as an asshole viewer, I was like, I can look at my email now because not, nothing's <laughs> happening. And I was like, wow, what a, that, I'm blowing it because here's like, it became one of my like favorite moments and scenes like from the whole season. Because totally. it's just like, wow, you're just watching, you're watching him really do the work and really feel the feelings. And uh, I don't know, it's, it, it's great stuff. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the Michael Clayton shot, right? You know, the end of Michael Clayton where it just holds on Clooney sort of mm-hmm. dumb, dumbfounded at the end of that film. Um, yeah. yeah. It's the Mark Wahlberg from Boogie Nights shot. Yes, yes. Or Nicole Kidman in Birth. Let's just keep going, you know? <laughs> yeah. Or the kid from 400 Blows Freeze Frame. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, no, he didn't get to the freeze frame quite. But uh, yeah, no, but, I think that's uh, two things. I really like, for for one, that is a highlight for me too, that that sequence, that, that such a bold way for the for an episode to end and really draw mm-hmm. it out and um the second and maybe most you know concerning or more relevant element that you bring up is like yeah our viewing habits are they're they're changing they I mean I feel like we discuss some version of that on every episode yeah um and this is an example I mean you and I like we we really try to fight against those things and like distraction free you know really give yourself to whatever it is that you're watching and try to immerse yourself yeah Yet it's so easy to um, maybe let the traditional cues of like TV sort of let your brain think, oh, I'm okay to sort of tune out at this point. And you might miss mm-hmm. like, you might miss one of those beautiful, like sort of, you know, gloriously like cinematic moments in a show like Master of None, which is another compliment I can still pay it is that like how beautiful it is. It's got that widescreen frame. They do things more than. Um, I, I, what I love about Aziz and Alan Yang in what they try to do with the show is to try to expand TV, like not play by the normal rules and, um, yeah, be ashamed to miss out on all that good stuff with, uh, checking your email, you know, bullshit like that. But, um, yeah, cut it out. (laughs) We're all guilty of it. That's the point, I guess, you know, and it's, um, 
it, it might be relevant. You know, obviously we're going to keep talking about viewing habits and things like that as they, as they change, but um, yeah, can't help but notice it. Um, and there's another example, but uh, regardless um, uh, watch, watch master of none. If you haven't, uh, it's one of my favorite shows. Yeah. Well, I think that that might offer us a, a transition for a, a second, if we could, um, where, you know, it seems like we're never at a shortage of um, titles and properties being brought back from a time when things uh, used to have like more of a kind of like cultural seismic impact. Mm-hmm. And like there was there was just more of a zeitgeist in place and things certainly are big now that are contemporary that only come from this era and but it seems like they they build up and burn out faster and so there there isn't a a sense of sort of long lasting you know like classic stuff coming out so we it seems like pop culturally we cling to these identifiable titles and properties from like decades and decades ago like uh, Star Wars, for instance, or mm-hmm. what just came back uh, last night was David Lynch's series, Twin Peaks, for its third season, 25 years later. Mm. And it was just like, you know, it seems like things were, things could have a chance to grow more organically as opposed to sort of like, if things do get popular, they get insanely popular and then die off and nobody wants to talk about them ever again now. <laughs> And so, like, it seems like there's there's like a hunger for these these things that we've we've grown up with and these things that had a lasting quality. And, you know, sometimes reopening them uh, introduces a potential of tampering with the memory and, you know, potentially ruining it. But it's like with Twin Peaks, I know you haven't watched them yet, but I've seen I've seen the first two episodes and like this is a beloved series to so many people and i think mm-hmm. it's one that like sometimes people just love that show they don't necessarily love it as a vision of david lynch's they may sort of like identify him as like oh yes i love him but they really just mean they love that show right and so what the show has is like all of his all of him at work at once it's almost like every iteration of his his um, film and television work is sort of alive in some sense in this new version of the show. Okay, and so like the ticks and the bells and the whistles and the sort of quaintness that I think, I mean, people can start to identify what they like uh, a, a possible superficiality of the show, and they're just like, I like the small town aspect, or I like this and that, and so it's just like what he brings back is his vision. And so you have to sort of be on board with his whims, his sort of visionary quality, his weirdness, his like, because it's all in there. It's fucked. And it's like (laughs) riveting and hilarious and beautiful and frustrating and ridiculous at times, you know, where you're just like, huh, what the, oh, wow. This, you know, it's just like this roller coaster experience. Whereas I think like, there are people I haven't read anything or heard anything from anybody who's outright just denounced the show. It's been like a lot of sort of like bewildered glowing praise. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can see people who, you know, like the, the same people who, you know, you, you hand the star Wars franchise over to, you know, you, you give it back to George Lucas for him to sort of return to it. Cause he was the originator. He, he introduced everything, the entire world and all of a sudden, 
you had an audience kind of coming to terms with the fact that it's like, well, this isn't what I want. This isn't what I liked about Star Wars. And then after that whole thing kind of crashes and burns, I mean, crash and burn loosely because it still made billions of dollars. Yeah, that's failing upwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, there, there definitely was like a sort of sense of like, uh, you know, people's expectations being dashed and like them being kind of like, let down by it and so you had a whole new team come in that basically did a cover band version of what everybody loved about the original three Mm -hmm. and so it's just like everything sounds and looks pitch perfect like everything you loved but it doesn't have the sort of grit and original chemistry of what you loved so it's just like there's something that was like yeah it works and then it rinses right off you know what i mean yeah It's, it's impressive but it doesn't have the sort of like feeling of like being, a, I don't know, being like a, a true sort of authentic vision with all of its flaws. Mm-hmm. And so now I guess if we can pivot to um, Alien Covenant, which came out this weekend, here we, here we have a property like <laughs> being returned to its uh, its original director. You know, it was a script before it got to him so like the in screenplay form he wasn't responsible for that it was dan o'bannon and uh i can't remember the other his collaborator but walter yeah. hill also a writer on it or a rewriter on it and but when it got to ridley scott like it was really it was a he brought a visionary quality to it and so now starting with prometheus which like did they ever really like they were so evasive about like no it's not an alien movie with prometheus that like did they ever come to terms with the fact that yes 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 it it's an alien movie it's part of that whole like it they just were such dicks about like never firmly committing to it being part of that universe or not yes this brings up one of my main issues of this movie we're talking about Alien Covenant, because I think a lot of what Alien Covenant represents is the real answer. Like, yeah, of course, this this was an alien movie all along. And one of my biggest issues with Prometheus was the fact that uh, even though I, I admired so much of its ambition and its desire to sort of create something new within a familiar world, mm-hmm. I still think there is so much untapped potential there um, in terms of resuscitating these old franchises Instead of doing that sort of what you just very, uh, you know, you articulated very well, the the way Star Wars um, Force Awakens was 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 made purely to just remind us, bring us back to that original feeling so much that it just follows the beats of that original movie Um, that ah, I, I, I can't get over like, gosh, wouldn't it be exciting if someone did pull off something new within an established world or franchise? But uh Prometheus definitely like the where where it um kind of went wrong for me in one moment was right at the end when it gave you that moment where it showed an alien being born and that was that felt like this fan service thing that was tacked on right th- as though Fox was like hey Ridley Scott we're we're with you here but like your vision what you want to do but you got to give them something alien you know something <laughs> in the alien world yeah and Alien Covenant now is this is it's a fascinating movie, but boy, is it uh, frustrating too. But I feel like this movie is at war with what Ridley Scott really wants to be doing. And then the sort of expectations and the, uh, the sort of traditional horror elements that he obviously feels he has to include in this movie. And I think it makes for a pretty messy 
viewing experience. I don't know about you. Yeah, no, it's it's really like incoherent in in a lot of ways. And I I mean, I still was appreciative of Prometheus. You know, I thought it was yeah. like a a very dumb script. Um but I thought that he pulled off some things visually that were still very, very impressive. And it had like, if nothing else, one set piece that was uh, that was really, really impressive and sort of like dazzling the the sort of like auto abortion scene. Absolutely. Yeah. I rewatched that last night and it's still um, man. That sequence is, is great. Yeah. You get some great hits when you just Google auto abortion. Uh, <laughs> it's a typical Sunday like, evening for me. Yeah. Yeah, but with with Alien Covenant, like it, I think it starts after it's sort of uh, drawn out David prologue. Like once the movie actually starts, it sort of s- starts at a clip that I was just like, okay, well, if they keep this up and it doesn't get bogged down with anything too stupid, then it like it should it should be fine. Like he he knows how to deliver a sort of like lean piece of filmmaking. So it's just like even if this is by the numbers, if it stays at this clip we should be okay. They're not really establishing any of the characters outside of the main couple. Uh, but that's fine. You know, you could just let them die off. That's, that's perfectly fine. Like I think the in alien and aliens, I'm probably going to lean more towards, uh, having more glowing praise for aliens. Cause like, it's the one that I prefer over the two. Um, hey, but there's no wrong answer for those two. They're both great. It's true. But, um, it, it very quickly just becomes like, distractingly bad like i think that uh like the there's just the at the very least the auto abortion scene in prometheus is incredibly well executed i cannot say the same for any of the sequences in alien covenant like none of them feel all of them feel rushed and it's like what are we rushing to like it's not like you're not packing anything interesting in that's so dense that we have It's all just sort of like meandering philosophical, whereas like alien and aliens were incredibly efficient, like brutally efficient films, like Mm -hmm. where they, they delivered the the goods while still establishing characters and having ideas that were, that were sort of in the delivery system of an economic genre movie, you know? And it was just like, those ideas were given, sort of like uh, a boost because they were delivered in a satisfying dramatic fashion. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And like, and this is just like these sort of ideas kind of hang in the air and they're, they're sort of given credit by people who like the movies for having like, you know, like, well, it, it has a philosophy and it's just like, yeah, but the fucking movie is like dull and it like, <laughs> it's, it's ugly and none of the none of the moments have like weight because they look goofy or they just don't deliver like, the chestburster scene in the original Alien, it's like Walter Hill in a couple of interviews recently said that the script for the original Alien was like pretty flawed. But once you got to that scene, he knew like that the movie had something. Right. And the scene is like that's so primal and upsetting and fucked up and mm-hmm. just like. And it's like it's the reason that movie, not just that scene, but like that's one of the iconic scenes, and. Uh, for anything to have iconic moments like that's what lets it stand the test of time that's what makes people like consider it beloved and want to see it return to and the there's like a chestburster scene in alien covenant that's so rushed through to the <laughs> to the point of being like 
what was what, what was the purpose of that? Like, why did why did we even bother? Like, it was just sort of like, hey, here's that thing you guys like. Anyway, you know, and it was just like, I don't I, like I don't. Ridley Scott seemed, you know, through through like the 80s and 90s after he had the, the sort of one two punch of Alien and Blade Runner. He just like you probably if he was interviewed about it, he'd be like, yeah, I have no interest in making another alien movie. And like all of a sudden now he does. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, is it because he has like a, a, a whole new like vision and backstory? Excuse the dog barking in the background. It's not mine. <laughs> um, or is it just like, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what cynically I could assign it to, but like, it, it just feels like there there isn't a real sort of driving purpose. And if anything, the expansion of the mythology is at the detriment of how efficient those first two movies were. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, gosh, if you think of that first film, too, like as lean and efficient as it is, as you've described, and that's one of the things I just love so much about it, and the pacing of that original film where, like, mm-hmm what the first five, 10 minutes is just shots of hallways and the spaceship. It's just like literally just establishing a space. Um, I love yeah. so much the slow pace, the, 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 the long breaths that alien takes in between moments to set up everything. Um, that way when the nightmare hits, it's just, it's so much more effectively, like it just works so much more effectively as an audience. Yeah. And you also, you can't deny that, um, how much in alien and aliens, how efficiently character dynamics are set up and characters are, you know, given like three dimensionality. Like you actually believe them as people mm-hmm. that is completely lost in, in Prometheus and alien covenant. One thing, those two movies definitely share these two recent alien movies from Willie Scott is that they character development just seems to be something he just does not care about. And I think that that tells me that he's just not that interested in actually making like bringing alien back for the reasons that it was successful in the first place. Like these were just really great sci-fi horror movies or in aliens case, a great action sci-fi movie. He, he seems so much more interested in trying to find a way it's, it's a challenge and I'd love to see it work. It, It gets back to what I was originally saying of like the untapped potential to do something different. Like, I like, I love and admire the ambition there, but I, I don't know if Alien, a, a very lean horror movie, is the best, um, you know, the best sort of like world to try to create this like who created humanity and then the sort of yeah. like, you know, you're going through this chain of like who creates who and then we create robots. I mean, that stuff is very like fascinating yes right it's like but it does it fit in with what people loved about the original no No. and i I think no i mean an alien covenant to me makes that more apparent uh because i'm so much more disappointed when i get uh action sequences that feel really rushed the the one you bring up just that is a great example uh someone gets hit with a face hugger in in the exact same way we've seen it before it jumps out of the egg but all mm-hmm. of that happens in what like the to the point where it incubates the the person chest burster comes out that's all in like a minute or two span where yeah. do you remember with how long zero build yeah like Ridley Scott just doesn't seem interested in it. He's like fuck it like just like near the end of this movie there is also a just random like shower sex scene that's straight out of a bad like slasher movie from the 80s 
And it's there's nothing else to it other than naked people, dead right. people. And that's it. And that's – I don't know. What happened to the Ridley Scott that liked the slow build? I really miss that Ridley Scott. And I it's um, – Alien Covenant is just another – for me, a very glaring example of his later work that it just shows how, for me, he's just fallen so much off of like – I just don't find him to be that good – that exciting of a filmmaker anymore. Yeah. And so if he's not interested in the things that people love about the original, I mean it's just like – the design of the alien even like it's so rushed and like the digital recreation of them is so just like like un not unimpressive but like it just doesn't leave an impact like there was something about like those the actual physical like like space that the clearly like dudes in suits were walking around in like but there was just like there was an imposition that they had there was a menace to them yeah that like, in the first one even when, though you don't see the alien very often like there still was like there was there was a presence to them you just don't get with this you know with especially with like in the later action sequences you know, like on the on the wing of a plane that they're desperately trying to get off the planet. It was just like, oh, so now we're in like a Fast and the Furious movie where like the laws of like physics and gravity just don't matter. And so like in that sense, like I this isn't suspenseful in the slightest. Mm. And once they get to the ship where the sort of the climax after the climax happens and the shower sequence that you're referencing, like at the very least, they had introduced something that sort of plays out in the final showdown earlier in the movie where yes. it's just like, okay, here's classic storytelling. And even though the movie is like so far gone in my, like in my ability to kind of get invested in it, I could identify like, all right, they introduced those trucks on chains earlier in the movie. Like at least that's paying off. Like, mm. you know, cause it just seemed like everything was an afterthought. So I'm like, what is the main thought then? Like if he wants just, if he just wants to make a movie about Michael Fassbender as like a cyborg, make that movie. Like yeah. it doesn't have to be a fucking alien movie. Clearly he's, he's so invested in that performance, which is a great performance. Definitely. And like in that character and that sort of like weird spinoff of like blade, more blade runner than it is alien. Yeah. You know, then, then just make that movie. Like, I think it would be, I think it would be great. It just doesn't, it doesn't, you put it when we originally covered Prometheus that like this title, like this sort of like property has just too much baggage for it to live on its own merits. Like Mm -hmm. it has to answer to the legacy of these other films. Right. I think baggage is a good way to put it. Like, just let, let it go. Like just do, do something else. And like it, it sort of, I think I got mad about it. (laughs) Not only just because it's a long movie and I was just like, I don't want to feel like I'm sitting angrily through a film, but like he shot down the prospect of Neil Blomkamp's alien. Like he was just like, that's never going to happen. Yep. I was like, well, why? Like if he feels like Neil Blomkamp is the person who's not going to just do a cover band version of alien and aliens, but you know that he identifies what's phenomenal about those films definitely and that in the right context and given the right like you know tools he can deliver you know and mm-hmm. it's just like to, for ridley scott to be like no that's never gonna happen it's like <laughs> fuck this like then let's not let's, let's not do this again yeah i, I I'm think it's interested if avp gets i've never seen an alien versus predator movie me either 
bring back Alien vs. Predator with Sigourney Weaver and Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't know how it happened. So they cryogenically froze Arnold Schwarzenegger's <laughs> character, thaw him out in the future. AVP. I'm on board. Yeah. Not really. <laughs> yeah, I, I just it speaks to the sort of oh, man I, I i'm with you too because i don't i don't want to be make myself more cynical or be more sort of bummed out at the state yeah, of yeah. Like franchise filmmaking but it really does seem sad that for, i i have problems with ridley scott as a filmmaker these days but like a lot of people still recognize him as a visionary you know he's still touted as a as like one of the best filmmakers working today especially on this scale what yeah. the hell this guy can't get like convince a studio to give him enough money to make the movie he really wants to make. So instead he has to like marry it with something that does exist. And, you know, frankly, as the box office proved this weekend, it doesn't really seem, it, it might be arguable that he could have made the same amount of money, uh, with something straight up, not like not being an alien movie. And he could have just done the sort of creators, and AI and humanity, like the things he's clearly interested in. He could have done that and could have had no baggage attached to it. And I think people might be even more willing to go in and be open-minded and accept it for what it is. And it's just clearly, I mean, it's a, again, I'd love to see someone figure the right mix of how do you start something new in an established series? I think that would be exciting as opposed to the uh, legacy sequel stuff that we're getting so much of the, you know, I liked The Force Awakens. I really liked Creed, but like those movies are just sort of recreating the beats and the elements uh, with a slightly yeah. new twist to them to remind you of what was great about it in the past. This yeah, is and, and, yeah, and with those examples, like you, you know, with Creed especially, you get the the skill set of the of Ryan Coogler and yeah. and uh, you know and and Creed himself. And so, uh, sorry, I'm Michael, Michael B. Jordan, Jordan. <laughs> and like, uh, and and so it's just like that. Those performances are enough to justify its existence, you know. And and so, like with this, like you don't, I don't know, like you don't, you don't really get the sort of wow moments. You don't get the performances that, like, you know, the the sort of discovery of like Sigourney Weaver in a heroic role. Like, you just don't, you don't get any of that, like, that payoff. Like, sure, you get, like, glimpses of the xenomorph that people love, and you get a chestburster scene, like, which just feels obligatory. But you just, like, you don't, you don't feel the necessity. You don't feel the urgency. And you don't feel like you're in the presence of something that needs and has to be seen. You know, and like, I don't know, like, it's just heartbreaking. Um, I went, maybe that's a little melodramatic, (laughs) but like, I went to go, um, I braved North Hollywood, which I'm not sure how familiar you are with like the Los Angeles area, but North Hollywood is just like north of Burbank. It's, you know, it's a little dusty, it's a little sketchy out there. And there's a discount theater, which like discount theaters are sort of. They're they're dicey, I think in Los Angeles because <laughs> you you're just like you have movies that are three dollars you know sometimes even cheaper on the discount to the discount days and you you get like a potential for just like a hey it's a cheap mental institution cool you know <laughs> so Life was playing there Life the the new movie by Daniel Espinosa which is just like people who liked it or even just like yeah it's Alien all over again mm-hmm. and uh, 
And so that I had missed it in its initial theatrical run. It was playing at the second run theater, went to go see it. And the people who like want, who love what sort of we identify and love about alien can have that payoff in a movie like life Mm -hmm. where it's just like the performances are there. It's not as strong or visionary a film as alien by in any stretch, but it still delivers in this sort of efficient way and has an atmosphere and a claustrophobia, which is what my friend Ross cited as like, that's what's missing in these movies. It's like, yeah, uh, alien covenant. There's just no sense of isolation. You're just like, you're on a giant, you know, planet. That's like a biodome where it's just like a huge forest. And like the, I don't know, maybe we need to, (laughs) I feel like, now, now that we've got going, I'm like, we should nitpick on how stupid some of it is. But oh, it's like definitely. how it's infected in the sort of initial stretch of the movie is so dumb. Like, well, it's it's there's again, there's no build up to it. It's just the guy steps on a spore and oh, it's the remember the black goo from Prometheus, the stuff that just sort of magically is never explained. You know, clearly it's a MacGuffin in these new movies, but man, it really shows how lame or lazily a MacGuffin can be used because this black goo, this stuff that they, they just refuse to this time. (laughs) Yeah. It's a dust. Totally. And they, they still refuse to explain any of what it is. And it's just this magical stuff that can affect it's, it's like a screenwriter's get out of jail free card. sort of. And I can't help, but feel that I felt that very much with Prometheus and again in this movie. And that's really dumb. I mean, again, we have a lot of characters that are built up to be, you got to imagine these are smart people that are operating this machinery in space and they all act like idiots out of a really shit low budget horror movie that just hasn't yeah. had nearly the time or resources put into it. And that's so frustrating to me when, again, you know, you look back at that original when it is a horror movie and it's, it's so effectively done. Like just because it's a horror movie doesn't need, you need to be lazy about like setting up the horror elements. Um, quite the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's part like we're, we're usually harping on this and like, it's, it's clearly not going to go away, but like there's just something about, I think creating, you know, like when films are shot largely in a sort of, we're going to fix it in post way. Mm. Like you're not seeing on the day that these things need to get fixed. And you're just like, well, that's not convincing. Like we need to do something else to make it work. Like, and then once it gets into the, you're fixing it in post stage, like it's almost too late, you know? And so it's just like these things that you figured were all dialed in or would be eventually just don't have the sense of being convincing. Like, because like, they're just like, ah, we'll figure it out later. Whereas like when you're working on a set and you're primarily dealing with practical effects back in the day, and I know people are talking about how there's practical effects in this. I really couldn't identify any of them. Me either. Yeah. Um, I think some of the gore maybe, but that's so fast that like, you know, like something Mm -hmm. popping out of someone's mouth that shoots through the back of their head. Anyway, um, (laughs) you know, like, you know, on the day when you're shooting on a set, when like you're you're not thinking about filling it in digitally later like oh this doesn't look good like maybe sometimes you don't see it and you would see it in the dailies later but like for the most part you could tell if something's working or not and if it's not working and it has to be filled in later through some sort of like computer mapping sequence of gray dust getting into someone's head it's just like this doesn't like this isn't dramatically satisfying in the in the slightest Mm -hmm. you know like there's just no and so in that sense, like 
there isn't any thinking on your feet as to how to fix this. Like it's just sort of like, eh, we'll deal with it later. And like that, that mentality is such a disease of the contemporary filmmaker spectacle. It's yeah. like the spectacle movie is just that like, it doesn't, it doesn't have to like, I don't know, like make dramatic sense anymore. It's just sort of like rush through it. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter to the point where you're just like, well, well what in this world does matter? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> If the performances are an afterthought, if the characterization is an afterthought, if the sort of like action sequences are sort of like half haphazard, you know, it's just like then what what does matter? Like mm. Ridley Scott's musings on creation, like okay, then can I just have a conversation with him instead? <laughs> yeah, you might get more out of that actually. You know. I wonder um this might seem random, but I I I couldn't help but think this when I saw this movie is does this movie what does it make you think about what George Miller did with Mad Max Fury Road? Well, you I mean, were not you were, you know, on record and not being a huge fan of that movie. But doesn't it make you appreciate at all? I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm I'm genuinely curious, but that isn't that doesn't it make that movie stand out as so much more of an impressive effort for me? Like that's what it does for me. Like cuz yeah, George absolutely. Miller took the time and there was all that reports when it was being made of the delays, the reshoots, all that stuff, but it seemed so now it seems so antithetical to the way most big movies like this are being made that I I'm just I have so much more respect for George Miller for like sticking to his guns and and while like he updated the Mad Max series for a modern audience, he still made his film coherently i don't know no i think i think that's the the one thing that like i probably said at the time and like we'll still say that that movie is insanely impressive and it's just like he didn't come back to it like as a as a crutch like he came back because he was just like here's here's all these new techniques and here's what is missing from a lot of the new filmmaking that I can bring back that I was really good at. And like, let's Frankenstein this together into this sort of like bug eyed action movies, like exhausting spectacle. Mm. And like, yeah, I think, I think in that sense, like it's like that movie is never not going to be impressive in that sense. Right. I think it's, you know, we don't need to get into, we, we, we talked at length about this. We did. That's true. I, yeah, I just, just but, was curious. But yeah. I think you're right. That it was just like, well, here's, here's somebody that like, he had a new a new direction to take this beloved franchise in, and you know, like he didn't just make uh, a cover band version of it. Like, and he, um, and he also didn't do like he he clearly still wants to make Mad Max movies, even though it's different from the first three. You know, it, it's like he did find a pretty good balance. I think there. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he forced it out of me. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> Anything has enough cheerleaders for Christ's sake. That is true. That is true. I'll, I'll, I'll drop it there. Um, anything <laughs> you can think of. Um, and I'm happy to talk about more stupid things that people do in alien covenant, but I'm just curious, like anything that worked for you in, in alien covenant. Uh, you know, what was a nice surprise was that I thought that, uh, for one, this is not a spoiler because it happened in the first few minutes. <laughs> this is not what I was originally going to say. But James Franco on fire is a nice tweet. Um, uh, it's such a random James cameo. Has one of the only credible emotional moments. It may not have worked for you, but I thought, I was like, oh, this actually, like, he really, 
he's doing the work on screen in a movie that hasn't earned it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like in a movie that hasn't really invested you in his relationship with the person he's lost, but like you're, you're, you're showing someone distraught with grief. Mm-hmm. And it was just like for someone who's primarily a comedic actor who, you know, like dabbles in, in, in dr- dramatic moments for dark comedic purposes, like, he actually has a really kind of credible emotional moment, I think, in the movie. Yeah, I like I like Danny McBride in this movie, um, and he also just as a, I, I, it didn't bother me. It was just sort of like, oh, okay, but it felt very much like this is a James Cameron character, you know, like he wears a cowboy hat. He's named Tennessee. It reminded me of um, there's one of the the ship pilots in the Abyss that one of the main crew that like very much it's it's the it's a woman in that movie, but like very much reminded me of a James Cameron character. And Hey, that's, that's fine. I was like, okay with that level of like callback slash, you know, update, I guess he's able to pinpoint, uh, in, in a, in a strange rogue transmission, he's able to pinpoint a John Denver song. And mind you, this is like what uh, hundred years plus years into the future. Like, the the average millennial doesn't know who the fuck John Denver is. <laughs> this is a millennial's millennial millennial. So you're just like, hey, how the, how does he know who John Denver is? You know what I mean? Because he wears a cowboy hat and his name is Tennessee, Joe. It's That's true. What... He's he's done his homework <laughs> years into the past. But yeah, like just I don't know. Like year after year, like there's there's usually a, a revival screening of you know, either alien or aliens and because I'm partial more to aliens because it took what worked about the original and actually did something new with it. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it, it turned, it took the, the horror, the science fiction horror movie worked for alien. So it's like James Cameron's like, okay, let's make a science fiction horror action movie. And like, let me escalate it. Like there was a chest burster scene in the first one. That's like the centerpiece of it let's set it in a different circumstance so we do something new with it and like just seeing his establishment of characters in that like it's just like it's it's such a like that ensemble is so good how much you care and then because we lost bill paxton this year like his performance in that is one of my favorite character arcs like in movies you know yeah and you know, I was I was really hoping like when they announced Danny McBride was in it, I was like, oh, shit, I hope he's like, you know, the Hudson character of this. one. <laughs> and like, unfortunately, as up to the task as he is, like the movie isn't. So like yeah. you, don't, you don't get that sort of level of character arc or performance. It's true. It's true. I can I can cite one thing that really stands out for me that oh, I cool. that I really took that I really enjoyed. And um it's the score for this movie. The the small bits of original score, mm-hmm. um, especially they basically the 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 music and specifically it's this sort of very rapid uh, like heartbeat sort of rhythm with uh mm-hmm. there's like this weird flute kind of effect you know it's like a whistle. Um, it's mm-hmm. established very early before the opening scene, and then when all the action sequences or the horror elements sort of ramp up in the movie, there's specifically when the shit really hits the fan and the beginning near the beginning of the movie when um, uh, the first sort of signs of an alien pop up and kill some people mm-hmm. that, that music does like all the work to make it even remotely like thrilling, you know, because visually I I'm pretty baffled by what Ridley Scott tried to do in this movie. The, the visual mm-hmm. stuff that he's complimented on so much, like the visual 
elements of this movie really feel like rushed and not well thought out. And the I think you can see that the the budget was lower on this one because some of the CG doesn't look good. But uh, man, that that score that yeah, uh, uh, it's it's a great it piece of new music. Right. And it and it still has to sort of live within elements of Jerry Goldsmith's original score that pops up in this movie and certain bits of the Prometheus theme, which was completely different. I love that idea of like each new alien prequel thing that they're going to do, make a new score and see if it can all live together. That seems kind of cool, especially if the music is this good. And I really liked the original score for Prometheus, but um, yeah, that specific sort of heartbeat rhythm, man. Oh, I I do love that, that music. It just, it, it deserves to be in a better movie, such a better movie. Well, that's a, that's a nice takeaway that, you know, like, that's that that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I've we were actually showing Alien Covenant at my at my theater at Cinema Twenty One, a, a rare wide release movie that we're showing. Oh, which, really? Is it in the the big room or no? It is in the big theater. Yeah, and I mean, really, more than anything, it just shows our kind of lack of good options right now. Um, and it didn't even do that well for us, but it probably is better than anything else we could have played in there. So that's yeah. fine. But yeah, I've not gotten sick of all weekend. I was there and over the credits just kept hearing this score as I cleaned the theater. And I, that to me is like one of my new uh, signs of, I really like something is like, I'm not sick of hearing that music yet. And I've heard it four times in a day uh, all weekend. So yeah, um, yeah, that that's, that's my big positive from this one. Um, uh, Yeah. A good, a good performance, a surprising turn from Danny McBride. And then really that, that score for me, but um, yeah, it's, it's, um, we when we were talking about this episode, uh, I, I had brought up like the Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Is that the year that it takes place in? Yeah, the new one. I, I think so. Yes. Yeah. So the trailer had dropped around the time that we were we were discussing this episode, and it's just like that's a Ridley Scott movie um, that sort of ties into what we're talking about in terms of like that movie didn't even do well in its initial run. It wasn't even immediately successful. Like it was, you know, kind of derided at first and then slowly over time it gained a a notoriety, which seems like that's as much as like the internet affords us the ability to leave nothing unturned and everything can be discovered in time. A movie on that and that scale uh, getting sort of rediscovered feels like less likely. And so like, it, it just seems weird that there's a sequel coming out 35, fuck 35 years later. Um, and it like, did, did you see the trailer? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it looks, I think it looks great. Yeah. And, uh, like hopefully it's Dennis Villeneuve, uh, and you know, like we, we we care about him as a filmmaker. Yep. Um, yep. Never really talked on Mike about Arrival much. That's um, right. Yeah, and we both had issues with that. I mean, it's not a. I I, I just kind of was more in the middle on that one, surprisingly, given all the praise for it. But yeah, but it's it it's definitely it it's seen as like a masterpiece to which <laughs> I get really grumpy about it. But I think he's. <laughs> He like if there's going to be somebody a very distinct filmmaker to do something new with it like he's he's a great pick. Um, I just I yeah I wonder anymore like who's it for you know like yeah yeah because like is is there a, enough of a new audience that 
I mean, I, yeah, I, I guess there is, but it's just like, do they care that it's beholden to an entirely old property that's mm. 35 years in the past? And it's just like, just, I don't know. It's, it's interesting how things, how, how we're, we're so indebted to a time where things like a movie finding its audience over the years was possible when it, that just doesn't seem possible anymore. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and, you know, we'll be bored with alien in give it a couple weeks and it'll, it'll be like, it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah. It'll rinse right off until like they start the rumbling. Like they already started. Isn't he already shooting the next alien movie? I believe so. And it's been a little, um, contradictory or hard to follow exactly. But really Scott has said at times that he wants to make like three more movies. And now I think it's, and I bet, especially after this opening weekend, I'm sure he'll be lucky if he gets to make one more. And actually, that leads me to one last like complimentary thing I can say. As much as this movie bugged me, Alien Covenant, it did leave me at the end actually kind of being more interested to see if a third film happens. I'm more interested to see that than I was after Prometheus to see a second film. Um, so oh. that's kind of odd. Um, I think there is a... That is odd. Yeah, but there's a potential. That, like, I, I was forgiving of Prometheus thought enough worked about it and here here was my analogy you might like it because it's like a radiohead analogy nice you ready i am so kid a and amnesiac came out like within a year of each other but they're very clearly of the same creative burst you know like in the same they were recorded at the same time and so even though one is like dramatically stronger than the other one yeah uh, they're still sort of kind of i think adored similarly because they're there's sort of like one of the same even though one's stronger than the other one yeah i feel like because prometheus like my appreciation of it was just like that's eh, flawed but you know come on go easy on it <laughs> like i disliked alien covenant so much that it was just like it torpedoed any appreciation i had from prometheus so it was like the opposite effect fascinating and, well they're kind of one of the same and if this one's this bad, then I was wrong about the original one. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think that really is another interesting point of points um, because I've talked to some people over the weekend that, you know, some people really like to talk about this movie coming out of it. And the varied amount of opinions, they're really, I, I think what makes Alien Covenant even remotely interesting is the spectrum of like what people want out of an Alien sequel or prequel. Right. And also like what they take away from this movie. And it's it's a pretty like there is no consensus really on this movie and that's that is interesting. I've read a few like glowing Matt Zoller Sites is one of my favorite film film and TV critics working and he gave this a four-star glowing review, calls it brilliant and it's totally I've read that review several times and it I can't quite wrap my brain around it, but like that fascinates yeah. me at the same time. It keeps me interested as opposed to i saw guardians of the galaxy 2 like a week ago and it's i i've moved on i don't really yeah, care no one had anything to say about that like it was i think it most most people's consensus is oh it's good yeah. and like that's it and it's, so there's no there's no divisiveness there's no like think pieces about it it's just like it's good we'll, we'll what's what's next you know like what's next is cha-ching cha-ching you know like just let the money rake in and you'll see like that that sort of bland response to something like that 
A movie's making truckloads of money, obviously, but yeah, you look at Alien, and it's going to be a struggle for that one because um, uh, I think they probably spent a lot of money to market Alien Covenant and, and you know, obviously to produce it. So yeah, yeah, man. Weird times. Weird times indeed. Well, what do you say? Should we wrap this one up? Yeah, let's do it. Um, if if we could just mention like a few of the smaller movies that are in circulation. Of course, a, yeah. There's a, a documentary called Burden. Yes. That um, I don't know if it's opening in Portland or not, but it it's uh in the in the Los Angeles area. It was at the New Art. I think it's moved on to maybe one of the smaller theaters now. But it's a documentary about a performance artist originally. Mm-hmm. Um who then transitioned into making kind of more conceptual sculptural pieces, but like about his kind of volatile period uh, and how that sort of like followed him throughout his life and like doing these incredibly like controversial original performance pieces that like I knew about before watching the documentary and like thought it captured the spirit of that sort of recklessness um, really well burden. So it's, it's out uh, now. Yeah. think it's a very effective documentary and about a fascinating period um that uh and yeah to, i guess you could uh release a viral video where you know i mean kids are doing kids are self-harming all the time which that that was one of his like big things was like he dude shot himself <laughs> yeah he stood in a gallery and had someone shoot him for like an audience of like six people and like you know this was at a time where it was like it was possible that no one would, no one would have picked that up. No one would have wrote about it, but like it did, it caught flame. And then it sort of introduced this sort of like dark period of like volatile performance stuff. That's just like, wow, this is, (laughs) this is a weird, weird era. Totally. Yeah, no, I, I liked it. I was really glad. Thank you for like sort of tuning me into this documentary. Um, it played, at uh, Portland International Film Festival in February. But um, as of right now, I, I don't know about it playing anywhere theater-wise, but it's certainly going to be on VOD if it's not already. Yeah, Magnolia is putting it out, so yeah. it'll be out streaming shortly if you can't catch it in the city you live in. Yeah, and if you just want to watch a, a, a pretty fast, a, a sort of a character study documentary about a fascinating artist, um, uh, I, I'm with you. I recommend it. I, I liked it a bunch. I, and I apologize. We probably should have mentioned this at the top of the episode, so I'm sorry about that. That's fine. Um, it was it was nice the the screening that I saw on my drive home. I got to drive by one of his uh, m- most sort of like iconic Los Angeles uh, installations. The sort of like the the grid of lights out in front of LACMA. Yeah. Drive right by it after I saw the movie. It was really nice. Ah, that's perfect, man. Yeah, it's like a perfect like meta movie moment right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, very good. Yeah, Burden, check it out. I'm with you. All right, so why don't we wrap up episode 146 of Adjust Your Tracking. We are, of course, a part of the Playlist Podcast Network. You can find our episodes and the episodes of our other shows on the playlist.net. There's a podcast tab at the top of the page. Just go there. You can email us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter. What it, what's, it, what's it on Twitter, Joe? Uh, at Adjust Your Track. That's right. Follow us. We Maybe we'll follow you back. Who knows? Maybe. Could be. Could no be. promises. <laughs> Never. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we thank uh, the playlist for their support of this podcast. And uh, that's, I guess that's it. And I want to thank you, Joe, for talking with me today. Thanks, Eric.